0: Why am I an Adventist? Uh, very good question. Um, if we had a little more time, I'd ask some of you why you're Adventist. but is there any, like one person here who wants to tell me why are you an Adventist? One person? It closes through the Bible too. It's a very good answer. Um, yeah. So let's sort of dig in if I can make this clicker work. There we go. So first question is, what is an Adventist? Well, there's a lot of different definitions out there. Uh, It's a trademark registered by the General Conference. So that's (laughs) one one definition. (laughs) Uh, A member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that's another definition. Uh, uh, Someone who adheres to a religious sect or cult now, some people consider Adventists to be a sect or cult because we're not quite mainstream. We have a few, you know, we worship on uh, Sabbath, for example, and things like that. Um, are we a product of a religious culture? A lot of us here have grown up in this culture. And uh, I know people who don't attend church anymore, but they still sort of back off on Sabbath and they do other things. Um, uh, Here's a funny one. I have a friend who's a skeptic, um, pretty religiously agnostic, was raised uh, Seventh-day Adventist. Um, In his younger days, he would not eat meat. Okay? It's just one of the, you know, things. It's not part of our doctrine, but it's part of the culture for some of us. But he would smoke pot. I know other people, um, I think that uh, David Asterick would call them sevies, but not heavy sevies. Remember him talking about that? Some sevies who are not heavy sevies, that will, they won't eat meat, but they'll drink a bottle of wine. Okay, So it's interesting which parts of the culture stick and which parts of it don't. Uh, but you know, that's another definition of an Adventist, is you know, this culture that many of us, but not all of us, were raised in. All right, and then there's another thing. It's a believer in the literal return of Jesus, which is the one that we're going to talk about today. So the children's story was hopefully a warm-up for the talk today. So there we go. Here, I love this quote. The Seventh-day Adventist church is like a tiny mustard seed that was planted in the ground by William Miller and died. And then it grew into a large tree, and it is still growing. Now, the person, if I'm not mistaken, the person who actually wrote that is like a great-great-grandson or great-great-great-grandson or something of Ellen White, a great, um, some descendant of that family. And this is his description of the Adventist church history and it's actually pretty good. The seed was planted in the ground by William Miller and died and then it grew into a large tree. In case any of you are wondering what is meant by a large tree, mustard comes in a lot of varieties. Now, the mustard that we see planted in the fields maybe grows that high and it gets these yellow heads with all these tiny seeds in it, which get ground up for mustard. But mustard also comes as a large shrub. This is mustard, okay? So when we hear about mustard in the Bible, you need to think about this, not the two foot high plant growing in a field in Oregon. All right, that is one giant mustard shrub that is spread and spread and spread and seeded and seeded and seeded. That's what they mean when they say mustard. Um, that's in the Middle East. I don't know exactly where that picture was taken. Okay, so there's a, there's what a mustard seed can do. So now let's look at something else. i got to remember this one. It's got to be aimed or it doesn't work. So who was this William Miller guy that planted a seed in the ground that died and then grew into a big tree that is still growing? Who was he? William Miller was a diligent student of the Bible, and especially the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. Now, I call myself sometimes a Neo-Millerite because I like to study the Bible. Uh, I am not formally trained in theology, but I know the book pretty well. And I've spent a lot of time studying Daniel and Revelation and other parts of the Bible. he was also heavily influenced by something else. He was a militia captain during the War of 1812. Lived in in uh, New York, uh, not in New York City, but uh, near the south end of Lake Champlain. And uh, I also have ancestors from New York from that time who were in the militia um, uh, during the War of 1812. But that war, we think of it as sort of a forgotten war, but it actually was like the North American uh, part of the Napoleonic Wars, which were major. They changed the face of Europe in ways that are still there today. Uh, and William Miller interpreted the prophecies in terms of the Napoleonic Wars, amongst other things. And a lot of people today poo-poo that. William Miller was right. We're not going to go into all that right now. but. He was, um, he did put together a pretty amazing picture of the prophecies. Now, he believed that Jesus was going to come around 1843 to 1844. Now, this is another important thing. William Miller was an Adventist. He believed in the little return of Jesus. He was not, he worshipped on Sunday. He never worshipped on Sabbath that we know of. He was not a Seventh-day Adventist. So here we have English teachers. Any English teachers in the room? Got one. Which is the adjective and which is the noun? The adjective is seventh day. The adjective is seventh day and the noun is Adventist in this case. Alright. Now, when you um, when you are parsing a sentence, the subject is a noun. It might be a pronoun. All right. So and then the adjectives modify the noun. Alright? So the subject in the name Seventh day Adventist is Adventist. And yet so many times in the Adventist Church and our Sabbath school lessons, all that, we talk about Seventh day and we tend to ignore Adventist. Seventh day is the adjective, Adventist is the noun. We were Adventists before we were Sabbatarians. Okay? So, well, gotta go that way. Unfortunately, here's William Miller. Very godly gentleman, he was wrong. Jesus didn't come back in 1843 to 1844. Didn't happen. Okay, Miller basically accepted very graciously, much more graciously than a lot of other people, well, I must have been terribly mistaken. I've been to William Miller's house. I've been to the cemetery where he's buried. I would love to be in that cemetery when Jesus comes back. But he was wrong. Nevertheless, out of... That mistake grew the movement that we're a part of. So, this is an important thing for anybody who thinks they understand the Bible. Really important thing. Um, The more you study a subject, you don't really begin to understand any subject until you begin to understand how much you don't know about it. All right. When I was a kid, I loved astronomy. I knew a lot about astronomy, drew star charts and all this kind of stuff. Um, Then I began to discover how little I actually knew about astronomy. Same with studying the Bible. I knew the Bible very, very well. But as the more I've studied, the more I found out I don't know. And this is the paradox about God. We know almost nothing about God, and yet we know an amazing amount about God because he's chosen to reveal himself to us. But it's very important when we think that we've got it figured out. It's very important that we think about this verse. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing. Who knew more about the Christian faith than the Apostle Paul? Other than Jesus himself, right? And this is what he says. Now we, and that's including Paul, See only an indistinct image in a mirror, but then we will be face to face. And the mirror that he's talking about here is a tarnished mirror. If any of you remember the old mirrors that were made with a silver backing instead of the sealed aluminum backing, those things would tarnish. They'd get really gray. They'd get really dim. You could hardly see your reflection in them. Okay. The mirrors that they had in those days were typically polished silver. It would tarnish and you couldn't hardly see anything in it. He's talking about a dim, tarnished mirror here. You can barely see a reflection in it. Then we will be face to face. We won't see face to face. We'll be face to face. We'll be there. We'll see Uh, no mirror, no reflections, no looking glass. Okay. We will be face to face. Not just looking at God through a mirror, a very dim mirror. Now what I know is incomplete. This is Paul. Wrote more of the Bible than anybody else. Okay. Wrote more books in the Bible than anybody else. He says, What I know is incomplete. That should be very humbling for us, especially as Adventists who think we really, really know it. Okay? It's incomplete. But then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And who who has Paul been fully known by? Not us, by God. Okay? God knows us better than we know ourselves. And Someday, we will see clearly, face to face, what we only now see through a tarnished mirror. So it's very important that, like William Miller, we have the humility to understand what we don't know. That we know may know a lot, but there's a whole lot more that we don't know. So now let's look. Why am I an Adventist? Uh, one is the privilege of knowing Jesus now. And despite everything that we don't know, God has revealed an amazing amount to us. So it's our privilege to know what we can know at the same time that we understand that there's far more that we don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a privilege. It's a blessed privilege. We should take advantage of it. Uh, the privilege of sharing Jesus with our family and friends. Now, on this list is not being saved. That's, that's why I'm a Christian. I'm not talking about that today. Okay, the, the premise here is that we are saved, that we are Christians, that we've accepted Christ. Why am I an Adventist? So, the privilege of sharing Jesus with my family and friends. It's a privilege. It's not a chore, it's not an obligation, it's a privilege. And then the blessed hope of living with Jesus throughout eternity. Okay, and it is a blessed hope. So, now I want to look at this a little bit more. Let's look at a little bit of what Jesus said about his return. And this may be familiar to most of you, but things that are quote, obvious to Adventists, we have a tendency to not talk about in church, we have a tendency to overlook them, we have a tendency to take them for granted. So, I don't want to take this for granted, it's a privilege. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And he had, been ta- he had just left the temple and had said the temple is going to be destroyed. So that was their context. For them, the destruction of the temple and the end of the world were the same thing. If you were a first century Jew, Herod Temple, was still being fin- uh, finished in the time of Christ. Beautiful, tall thing, estimated to be 90 or 100 feet tall, gleaming white marble. Uh, if you have been up close and personal with some of the Mormon uh, temples, um, we walked right by one. Where was that? Uh, Provo? Was that where we were staying? Yes. Brigham City. Brigham City. Beautiful, gleaming white marble building. Now, That's intentional because architecturally, they sort of modeled those on Herod's temple. Okay, not exactly, but you know, that style of architecture, beautiful gleaming marble building. The disciples could not imagine that this thing was going to come down. So they said, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? All right, for them, the destruction of the temple, the return of Christ, the end of the age, all tied up together. So what does Jesus say? And uh, we're in the book of Matthew for Matthew twenty four for anybody who's online and can't read the finer print on the slides. Jesus answered them: "See that no one leads you astray." First warning. There's even within Adventism there are people leading other people astray about the return of Christ. And I'm not going to name names. I'm not here to throw rocks. So you don't have to look very far to see all kinds of. Things that, if we look closely at what Jesus said, don't quite square. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. That has happened. You'll hear wars and rumors of wars. We're hearing of wars and rumors of wars. You know, we just finally pulled out of one after 20 years, and whether you think it was right to go or whether you think it was right to come back or whatever, I don't want to get into right now. The point is, the U.S. throughout its history has spent more years at war than not at war. Uh, that's nothing compared to looking at the history of Europe, which until um, which until the end of World War II has been was almost continuous warfare for more than a thousand years since the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, it, 1,500 years of nonstop wars, practically. Okay. Now you can look at other parts of the world. You can go to Asia. You can go to places in Africa, the Middle East. Wars in the Middle East, almost continuously, ever since Jesus sat there on the Mount of Olives and said this. So it's not just rumors, it's real. See that you dare not b- alarmed. There's a missing B here, sorry. I, editorial error on my part, I delete it. See that you, you dare not be alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. So the wars have been going on for 2,000 years. They were going on before that. But the end is not yet. Some of us hope the war stops someday. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Earthquakes, famines, hurricanes, pestilence, COVID pandemic has killed millions of people around the world. It's killed one in every 500 Americans that were alive a year and a half ago. And it's still going. It's not done. A little more. Then many will fall away. And I'm not doing the whole chapter. Go home and read the whole chapter. I'm just picking parts of it here. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Does that happen within the church? Does that happen within the church? He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers here falling away, betraying one another, hating one another. This unfortunately happens within the Christian church. It too has been happening uh, for the last couple thousand years. Okay, this is not a recent phenomenon, Um, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's also been happening ever since 2000 years ago. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. People, whatever, whatever, whatever we do on this earth, let us not let our love grow cold. It is very easy. Very easy to be discouraged by all the things that he talked about in the previous slides and some more that I didn't even bother to put up. Very easy to become discouraged to let your love grow cold. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And then a little bit more here. If they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The last time I told this morning's children's story was actually in Oregon, and there was a lady in church that week who was a good friend of ours, not an Adventist, but her husband had just died and he was an Adventist. In fact, she was there, among other things, to ask me to speak at his funeral. That's another talk we can have sometime, but not today. And uh, when I did this children's story, she, I said, well, what did you think of my children's story today? She said, well, that's not how I visualize it. Well, that's okay. You can visualize it however you want to. Here I'm telling you how Jesus described it. It won't be a secret. When it happens, everybody will see it. Like the lightning flashes, and sometimes that lightning is in a cloud. You don't even know where the lightning was, but it lights up everything from one horizon to the other. And if you really want to see amazing lightning, Go up in an airplane. Uh, Don't fly through it. But if you fly around, you know, you have no idea what it looks like from up above. You know, there's far more of it up there than we see on the ground. So, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's going to come in the clouds. He will send out his angels a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So this is the way Jesus describes his return. Uh, But here's the important part. Uh, An important part, not the only part. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, let me ask you, is there anybody here that thinks that modern scholars know the Bible better than Jesus did? Okay, there are people in in the Adventist church today who are studying the Bible trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come. You know, you've seen charts of the signs and all the sequences and we'll have this and this and this and then this will happen, right? If you've been an Adventist all your life or you or even been to some evangelistic meetings, you've seen these charts. You've seen people map it out. There are people in the Adventist church today who are studying the time prophecies in the Bible and saying, "Well, you know, if it's too Half weeks, it's 2,500 and 20 years and all this kind of stuff. And trying to come up with some formula to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. Well, we're trying to do something that Jesus himself didn't do. Okay, He knew the Bible better than any of us, but he says, I don't know what's going to happen. Now, Jesus is in heaven now, he may know. I'm talking about Jesus on earth. But since long before William Miller people were trying to figure out schedule, you know, what God's schedule is. You understand what I'm saying? What God's calendar is. And uh, Jesus says the things that he described are going to continue to happen, all right? But he said, you don't know. He said, I don't even know. I, living as a divine human mixture of the two, unity of the two on earth, I don't know in my human flesh when I'm going to come back. So, don't try to figure it out. All right? This is the admonition of Jesus. But he says something else very important. Stay awake, for you do not know in what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, would not have had his house broken into. Have any of you ever had a house broken into? Have any of you ever been home when your house was broken into? Happened to Renee and I in Connecticut. All right, um, we weren't expecting it. We're in bed at night and Renee says, there's someone in the house. <laughs> and I woke up and she was right. <laughs> I won't tell you the rest of that story, but I can tell you that it's not something you expect. It is not something you expect in the middle of the night to wake up and find, find out there's somebody in your house. Um, all right, we'll, I'll leave that little mystery for you. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, here's the two sides of this thing. When He comes, everybody's going to see it, everybody's going to know it. But the other side of this is when He comes, nobody's going to be expecting it. We're going to be hoping for it, but it, it's going to be a surprise. And it's going to be surprised surprise to everybody. So, these are the two takeaways here, critical takeaways from this. It's going to happen, it's going to be real. Everybody's going to know when it happens and yet everybody's gonna be surprised. So now I wanna switch to a different topic here and you'll wonder what this has to do. The great Cascadia earthquake. You live sometimes in Washington. This is a subject that even though you're well away from the St. Helens and Rainier and the main earthquake epicenters, Um, people here in Colorado are not used to the ground moving under our feet, right? When I was in Michigan, one time while I was in college, we had an earthquake. It like made the headlines because it was the first time in hundred years or more that anybody had ever felt an earthquake there. We live on pretty stable ground here, we like to think. Not so if you live uh, in the Pacific Northwest or California for that matter. January 26, 1700, I'll tell you how we know that this was the date when we get to the end of this. The largest recorded earthquake in the history of the contiguous U.S. territory. Doesn't mean there weren't bigger ones before that. This is the biggest one anybody's got a record of. Um, Estimated magnitude 8.6 to 9.2. That is one enormous earthquake. Uh, The New Madrid earthquake which actually happened uh, in the Lower Mississippi Valley in the early 1800s, was estimated to be somewhere around an eight, and that was a very big earthquake. Uh, there's been one in Alaska uh, in about 1960, 61, somewhere around there, that got up to around an eight. Uh, this is a you know, 7.8, 8.3. New Madrid is estimated in that range. This is a logarithmic scale for those of you who understand such things. So, uh, magnitude nine earthquake is like ten times as powerful as magnitude eight. All right, the Earth slipped more than sixty feet over a fault of more than six hundred miles. Uh, almost anywhere that you dig along the coast of Washington. Uh, from southwestern BC, along the coast of Washington, and the coast of Oregon, you find evidence of this earthquake. The, that is a huge amount of slippage, uh, like the what was it, Palmdale earthquake they call it, the one the one in California um, that happened. When was that? In the late seventies or early eighties, somewhere around in there. They estimated it slipped somewhere between ten and twenty feet. This is like three times the amount of sliding of rocks across each other deep underground of, of anything in recent history in the US. It was a biggie. And a tsunami 60 to 100 feet high traveled as far as Japan. Which is why we know the date of the earthquake. There were no white men on the west coast with, with white men's calendars keeping records here. The Japanese have had accurate calendars for hundreds of years. They recorded when the tsunami hit. Okay. And these tsunamis actually are waves going through the water at the speed of sound in water, which is faster than the speed of sound in air. Alright, so this shockwave travels around the world at about a thousand miles an hour, uh, or more actually. And so it only takes a few hours from the earthquake till it hits Japan. Um, it's surprising, a couple hours maybe, whatever it is, you can do the arithmetic. And that's why we know when this earthquake, earthquake happened. Uh, you know, the Native Americans had their legends about the big earthquake in the Pacific Northwest. The Japanese had written records of the tsunami. So, what does this have to do with the topic? So, little geology lesson here. What's going on here? And by the way, the first time I preached this sermon, after the sermon, somebody came up to me, an old man, older than me, by the way. He was probably as old then as I am now. And he said to me, I really appreciated your sermon. I finally understand what's causing the earthquakes. Well, (laughs) I hope you got some more than that out of it. But there is a mechanism here. We have these plates deep underground, which are sliding against each other. And at one point, we have the Pacific plate, and the Juan de Fuca plate, which by the way, the San Juan Islands uh, and all that, that's called the San Juan de Fuca. Okay, that's where the San Juan comes. St. John of something or other. Jose might be able to translate. so there's this little triangular plate in there, caught between the Pacific plate and the North American plate. These plates are rocks, solid rocks that go for hundreds or thousands of miles. Like most of North America rides on one big plate, floating on the Earth's mantle. The mantle is is a fluid. It's a very viscous fluid. It's thicker than toothpaste. Nevertheless, the continents float on it. Um, so we have this little tri- in on a, ge- on a geological scale, a relatively small plate called the Juan de Fuca plate, which is this triangle which is trapped between the Pacific plate and the North American plate. And that creates a lot of earthquakes. So, but what's happening here is the Juan de Fuca plate on the right hand of the screen is sliding under the uh, North American plate and uh, that creates the volcanism, it creates the earthquakes, but it doesn't move nice and smoothly because the rock isn't lubricated. Okay, so. The last time there was a big earthquake here, that Juan de Fuca plate slid how many miles? 60 miles. Huge amount of slippage over a span of 300 miles starting up around here in British Columbia all the way along the coast of Washington and then down along the coast of Oregon. That's what happened. Okay, so And the earth around that Juan de Fuca plate is still moving. It moves a few inches every year. So the longer between earthquakes, the bigger they are. How long until the big one, the next big one along the, the Oregon coast, the Washington coast? This is important because, you know, where do you build your schools and your firehouses and all that kind of stuff? So the answer is nobody knows. A lot of geologists think it's overdue. There's evidence in the ground that it happens about every 200 years. And if that's true, then we're hundred years overdue. Um, so some geologists think it's overdue. Others say, nah, it could be another hundred or 200 years before, before we get the next big one uh, along that part of the coast. And the thing is most people are not ready now. Everybody knows that the big one is coming, but people do, you know, and there's seismic codes for buildings and houses and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is, compared to the size of the catastrophe, there's not that much preparation going on by individuals or governments or whatever. And whenever it happens, a lot of people are not going to be ready. Whenever it happens. So what does this have to do with Jesus coming? How long until Jesus comes? Nobody knows. Some Adventists think he's overdue. Oh, he should have been here in the 1800s. He could have been here by night. You know, you've heard all this stuff, right? Nobody knows, which leaves a lot of room for speculation. Other Adventists think it could be a couple more centuries. Well, it could be a while yet, all right? If it's been 200 years, maybe it'll be 200 more. We don't know. Most people are not ready now. And whenever it happens, many people are not going to be ready. So some of the biggest, Earth-shaking events that we know are going to happen, we are the least prepared for, which is an irony of human nature.